Hello and welcome back to Twin Paradox. I'm King Everett Medlin, and what you're hearing is a sci-fi trilogy I wrote four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel. Twin Paradox follows my first podcast series entitled Deathwalker Colony, which is now a full-length novel available for purchase on Amazon. It's on sale today in ebook format for only $2.99, as well as the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, The Rise of New Australia and Return of Anarchy. You can check out some of my other works by going to the link provided in the transcript. When I set out to write Twin Paradox four years ago, I wanted to create a realistic and believable world less than 100 years in the future. In this first book of the Twin Paradox trilogy, the setting for which begins in the year 2086, the reader learns of our current society's collapse, how the American credit-based economy comes crashing to the ground, bringing an abrupt end to a system that essentially goes all the way back to 1971. Part one is called Collapse and Aftermath, and in the first five chapters, you will hear of a new world order taking shape following the debacle, not to mention the beginning of an exciting new era in human history. Twin Paradox is a sci-fi series encompassing three full-length novels, all of which will be read in their entirety during the coming weeks. You can go online and download the ebooks by searching Twin Paradox, Purple Hazel, or, if you prefer, tune in each week and listen to me read them to you. So let's continue, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, Twin Paradox, Chapter 3, The Rise of the Global Union. In Part 3 of Corey's expose, she addressed Carl von Habsburg's meteoric rise to power. This was easy to research using government-approved Macronet sites. He possessed instant credibility, it was said, and not just because he was a Habsburg. Europeans had little patience for royals anymore— Nostalgia for Europe's glorious past was never a factor. Government-sanctioned historical documentaries and college texts instead spoke of his impeccable background. Corey had learned all about him as a child growing up in Canada. For that matter, most any sixth former or high school senior knew of the man's stellar credentials. The life of Carl Habsburg was a common subject in classrooms. He was the real article, an educated leader with a history of carrying on his father's work and promoting a united Europe. His pan-Europa movement garnered immediate appeal once his colleagues began campaigning in support of him. People listened to what he had to say, and for good reason. The movement Karl championed was fiercely independent of all existing political parties. It maintained a strict code of conservative Christian principles, which not surprisingly helped Habsburg gain acceptance among both Catholics and Protestants. Also, it acknowledged contributions from both Islam and Judaism, whose heritages the pan-Europeans professed to share. To an already integrated Europe who had experienced so much pressure from ethnic minorities, as well as from right-wing zealots who campaigned openly for their expulsion, the suggestion of a united, more tolerant Europe quickly gained traction among a disillusioned electorate. That said, it came at a price. Habsburg and the pan-Europeans swept into power and immediately began instituting systemic change. Wasteful social programs for the needy, Unemployment benefits? 
These were one by one eliminated or in some cases unfunded. Millions were affected, and the outcry must have been incredible, Corey had to assume, yet no one dared try and curtail such draconian measures. The vast majority of working-class citizens wanted stability above all else, as official sources boldly and repeatedly claimed. And this bore true when speaking with those who'd been around at the time. What Corey discovered in her many interviews was that people honestly did believe such belt-tightening was necessary. It was almost surreal how these old-timers spoke. They sounded at times like government-authorized spokespersons as they described the necessity of stopping the bleeding, as one elder upstate New Yorker described it. Or as one old fellow from Quebec phrased it, We were fed up with things, you know. People sticking their snouts into the public trough without contributing nothing. Habsburg, he put a stop to this nonsense, you know. Such a blunt comment was pretty common among that faded generation of hardened survivors, Corey noticed. Nevertheless, they were clearly speaking the truth about how they felt. When faced with the even more daunting challenge posed by Islamic fundamentalists, folks were all the more willing to give ear to pan-European ideals of global unity. Many hastened to point out that the reasons for widespread acceptance were both practical as well as rooted in fear over the looming threat of democratic regimes being replaced by radical Islamists in the Middle East. Egypt, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and eventually the proud nation of Israel succumbed to the debacle. Wars and civil insurrections lasting weeks or even months plagued the region throughout the next 10 years, in fact, leading to skyrocketing oil prices and the overthrow of governments nominally allied to the West. Israel was the last of these to fall, and when its hard-pressed military used up the last of its resources, when there was no longer the United States of America to come to their aid, Israeli refugees fled in droves to an already overburdened Europe seeking asylum. Millions did so as Jerusalem fell to Muslim forces seizing control of their ancient capital. Many never made it to European shores or starved into human skeletons living for months inside makeshift camps thrown together outside European coastal cities. Former refugees that Corey interviewed, now living in North America, described it as a second holocaust, only this time their nemesis was not some megalomaniacal dictator. It was an old enemy nevertheless, which had persecuted them for centuries, and the results of this could be seen as ships arrived at southern European ports delivering frightened, exhausted Jews to the continent. Thus, the growing international threat, the destruction of Middle East democracies by Islamic radicals, was a huge motivation to vote the pan-Europeans into office and unite all free nations into a single global union. Japan, Brazil, Russia, India, and other nations joined as well. Even China petitioned for membership. They simply had no choice, lest they lose all trade ties with the West. But what of the former allies in the Middle East? What should be done? What could be done? Unfortunately, the first order of business was fixing the world's economy. Globalization of commerce was pursued in earnest. Borderless trade, a single world currency, abolishment of tariffs, standardization of an acceptable living wage, free public health care, free education. These were all proposed, then approved, then rapidly instituted. 
bloated bureaucracies were evaluated, pared down, or in many cases, eradicated. A streamlined system took their place, eliminating the need for wasteful, often redundant programs. In their place, minimal staff and administration overseeing public school systems and hospitals became the preferred format. Best of all, the lure of coming to Europe for its liberal social programs, such as unemployment benefits, which served to disincentivize personal initiative, faded away like a human body purging itself of unhealthy toxins. Meanwhile, practically no one, maybe a mere handful of the millions of survivors worldwide, would now profess to missing all those liberal social programs, and for that matter, why would they? Large cities had once become veritable quagmires of social discontent, brimming with legions of government-dependent poor. And what became of them, these freeloaders living off government handouts, these millions worldwide draining taxpayers of their hard-earned money and siphoning off the public treasury? They were largely eliminated during the crisis, either by disease or as a result of urban violence. Therefore, in the minds of many that Corey interviewed, there was no need to support this underclass anymore. She heard this commented on several times during her research from otherwise kind-hearted people who were only speaking their minds after nearly 50 years since the collapse. Decades of government propaganda and sanitized historical accounts of those early days during the recovery had colored their memories, perhaps, but their resoluteness was notable. Most truly believed that policies instituted by the GU had been long in coming. Checks stopped arriving in the mail for unwed mothers with children from three different fathers. No more food stamps or grocery vouchers either. The government had cut them off permanently. Tragically, that's how many felt it needed to be. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, stated one elderly American gentleman quoting from the U.S. Constitution. But let me tell you, it don't really turn out that way, not when you get right down to it. There's always going to be people you just can't do nothing for. But how to get all the remaining wealth of the world once again flowing into and through this new world order now being championed by Carl Habsburg's pan-Europeans? The solution, Corey learned from her research, was clear. It was all there online for her to read in exhaustive detail. Establishing the global union and expanding its economic influence worldwide required only one very important first step, dominating the money. The move to make the euro the world's reserve currency made the most sense. So that's what they did. The cost of goods and services were slowly brought under control. The United States and Canada, along with their traditional trade partner Mexico, formed a single province called North America, using remnants of existing bureaucracies, eliminating redundancies. Living standards plummeted, but eventually things leveled off. That's because, with the vanishing of American hegemony and the devastation of its major cities, global industry was once again attracted to this new cheap labor force, which, despite the horrific loss of life, still numbered in the hundreds of millions. It was regrettable, seeing their country in tatters and no longer a world power, but most she spoke with found a way to rationalize things. We just had to accept it, as one kindly old man put it in an interview with Corey at his retirement home in upstate New York. We just weren't the land of opportunity no more. If jobs opened up somewhere down the road, well, 
people just had to take whatever they could get. But there weren't no more need for folks coming up north from Mexico looking for a better life. It wasn't no better up here than it was down there, to tell you the truth. Some jobs were comparatively demeaning for those more accustomed to working as white-collar professionals. And to be fair, many of those opportunities did return with time. But once membership in the GU meant investment in the rebuilding of major cities, those long-lost manufacturing jobs that had flowed out of North America started returning. That wasn't all. Converting portions of the continent into solar farms to generate global stores of electricity required millions of acres and millions upon millions of man-hours. Meanwhile, here was this massive labor supply still crawling out of the 2028 financial crisis, ready and willing to work. I guess if you can begin to understand just what we'd been through, it'd make a lot more sense, said the 86-year-old from Buffalo. I had no problem working construction after having a 13-year career as a claims adjuster. Then he added with a smirk, Shit, none of us cared back then. Work was work. If it meant sending them shiny new euros back to our wives and kids so they could afford groceries, so be it. That's all we needed, really, and I gotta say, there's nothing quite like that feeling you get when you start thinking to yourself, hey, maybe we're gonna get through this. That's how I saw it, anyway. His was a typical story. Many had gone without a paying job for over a year. There just wasn't anything they could do. Most jobs prior to the collapse were service economy based, and people were too broke to buy anything. People couldn't afford gas, couldn't drive anywhere, couldn't afford restaurants, couldn't afford luxuries, couldn't pay mortgages, and rarely could pay rent, utilities, or even their water bill. Families regularly abandoned homes and moved in together, trading specialized skills and forming micro-communities where folks relied upon one another for subsistence. Everyone had to pitch in. Everyone had to contribute. Community gardens were tended to by children and adults alike. Chickens were raised. Duties and chores shared. Squirrels and rabbits were hunted so to bolster communal mealtimes. Nevertheless, people did starve. They only ate once a day, usually. Live birth rates plummeted as people realized there was no way to afford another mouth to feed. As for those still struggling to make do, they often went hungry, as Corey often heard. Yep, going without food in your belly for a day or two, that's what I remember the most, commented one little old lady sitting with her withered husband on a front porch in New Detroit. Makes you smarter for one thing, clarified her elder companion seated next to her. Makes you figure things out, let me tell you. But that's just what North Americans did. They figured things out. It hardened them. It sharpened them. It killed them off by the hundreds of thousands, too. America and her previous greatness were all but a memory now. Her time had come and gone. Those who wished to endure and live to a ripe old age someday would simply have to find a way. The weak and the lazy could not be helped. They were, all these hardy survivors, like a massive herd of bison out on the Great Plains, surviving the winter by forming a circle during a blizzard. Nevertheless, everyone knew, just like the buffalo once knew, that the wolves would come again, the cold would kill off the feeble, and the grasses may not always be plentiful enough come spring. Every family's, and for that matter every commune's, ultimate demise was never more than a month away if everyone didn't make sacrifices and, above all, work hard.
The turnaround was quite long in coming, no question of that. But when the GU instituted new policies for the conversion of global energy production into renewable sources like solar and wind power, in hopes of strangling Islamist bloc nations controlling the world's oil supply, that's when this threat to world stability finally subsided. Islamic theocracies in Egypt, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Oman, Kuwait, Jordan, and the Palestinian Caliphate eventually collapsed without having to fire a single shot. It was a good thing, too, Corey discovered in her research. Nick of time, some might say. As far back as 2015, she read, scientists had been predicting that the world's supply of fossil fuels would become depleted within decades, specifically oil in about 53 years, coal in little over a century, and natural gas within 54 years. The Earth, and more importantly humans as a species, would someday have to reckon with that irrefutable fact. Things had to change. The global union reacted swiftly, and in so doing set off an economic expansion that brought about the dawning of a new spectacular era. This concludes tonight's podcast of Twin Paradox Book 1, Chapter 3, The Rise of the Global Union. I hope you enjoyed it. Watch for Episode 4, which I'll be posting very soon. I wrote Twin Paradox books 1, 2, and 3 four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel, and it is still available for purchase on Amazon. You can download and read all three books if you like, or if you prefer, simply listen in as I read them in their entirety, all 60 chapters. Each week, I'll be posting a new episode with a brand new chapter from this epic sci-fi trilogy. Also, and don't forget, my latest full-length novel, Death Walker Colony, is available right now in ebook format and can be downloaded today on Amazon.com, along with the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, The Rise of New Australia and Return of Anarchy. I'm King Everett Medlin. Thanks for tuning in.